dollar debts will pay They got a job down in Soho Her daddy said don't date them He got no dough She had a doorman, elevator, penthouse Alligator shoes and a driver so I am here with Joanna Rakoff, who is most recently the author of My Salinger Year. Joanna, how are you doing? Okay, thank you. Okay, okay. Well, hopefully we can bump it up to better. Uh, <laughs> um, so I wanted to actually start off with the tone of the book. I mean, you present yourself in this memoir as someone who responds to the universe's concerns with these short declaratory bursts. Uh, when you are asked questions about how equipped you are to handle your role as an agent's assistant, your responsibilities as an adult, you often answer, I can. I do. I am. It is. I understand. Never yes, which I found really interesting. And it leads me to wonder whether this laconic approach is perhaps the best way to negotiate uh, early life and to sort of figure out what the beginnings of life are. How is this self-portrayal your answer to the Holden Caulfield idea? It's funny. All you have to do is say something nobody understands and they'll do practically anything you want them to. Well, um, you know, I was—I definitely didn't have that in mind when I was um, establishing the tone for the book. Um, I I came upon the tone um, in just a kind of um, instinctual happenstance sort of way. I I signed on to write this book um, with great trepidation. I'm not really a writer of memoir. I don't write that much about myself. I'm also not a, a sort of person who's confessional in spirit. I don't post on Facebook saying how sad I am or um, in any, anything like that. Um, and in my fiction, I don't even usually write in the first person. And so when I sat down to write the book, I found myself um, extraordinarily at sea, unsure of what this uh, persona, this person was, this voice was that <laughs> I needed to create. I am, I do, it is. <laughs> It's kind of the early formation of, well, how am I going to portray the Joanna on the page? Well, you know, it more came to me just um, the the opening scene of the book um, in which you sort of see um, it's sort of written almost as a we. Um, and it's um, you kind of see vast numbers of young women going to work as assistants. Yeah. And in writing that scene... Um, I was able to kind of hit upon what I thought of as a tone that felt right to me for a, a book about things that took place at this point almost 20 years ago, more like 14, 15 years ago when I was writing it. Um, I, I wanted a tone that was um, not nostalgic. Um, I thought that it would be very easy to slip into kind of a nostalgia for a bygone era. Yeah. And um, so writing that that scene... Um, that's not purely about me, but kind of um, pans out and shows you lots of women who were doing the same thing that I was. Like it's a very sort of female role, this assistant's role, yeah. um, allowed me to kind of hit upon this cool tone, and then I could slip into the kind of I of the book. Um, in terms of the I can, I am, I understand, I will say that that is simply um, how I actually speak. Um, as, you do. And um, I I. I do tend to be a person who speaks in sentences um, rather than just saying. You don't like using saying, yes or, or yeah, man, or anything like that. That's just not in your no, vernacular. No, it's yeah. not. I'm, I'm, my, um, I, I will say that this is partly my parents' fault. My parents 
um, are sort of two generations removed from me. They had me very late in life. They're Depression era, greatest yeah. generation people, and they don't use any slang. My mother's letters to me are written, you know, as if she's Emily Dickinson, you know, or Miss Manners. Um, there are contractions, but there's there's no slang used in my household. And certainly if I used any <laughs> anything that was grammatically incorrect or that fell into the realm of kind of of-the-moment slang, if I said awesome in the 80s, I – was given a fish eye by my mom or wow. was told, oh, please, Stood in the corner with Fowler basically reciting the rules of usage. Kind of. It yeah. just was frowned upon. And I, without realizing it, um, sort of absorbed um, their grammatical constructs. Well, well how do you, you know? permit slang in your life now or even in your fiction or even in your memoir? Well, in fiction um, and in memoir as well, um, I... I'm a huge stickler for dialogue. Um, you, you may know this, but I, you know, I spent many, many years primarily working as a book critic. And one of the things that drove me crazy when I read contemporary fiction was um, dialogue that felt inauthentic. Um, I remember reading a book in which nobody used contractions in their in the dialogue, and I thought, why didn't this writer read the dialogue out loud? Because th- this is absurd. Nobody actually talks like this. So, you know. In, you haven't actually gone to Contraction Central, this city out in West Virginia where nobody actually – much. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to that place. Yeah, they banned um, contractions. It's been on the municipal ordinance for about 20 oh years now. Yeah, That might also be like the place where all bad literary translations go. You know? and, um, and cheap Dostoevsky translations in particular. Yeah, yes. All the Russians. Yes. Who, anyway, sorry. <laughs> yes. I just actually read um, – a novel in translation um, that is this novel that was a huge bestseller in France called The Yellow Eyes of Crocodiles. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, been published all over the world. And it's a very commercial novel. Um, but the translation, um, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone listening to this, but the, the translation was, you know, clearly done in a very rapid yeah. Way that's about eighty percent of translations are because the translators are paid almost nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, but I think this is book was a bestseller and they wanted to get it out. And um, the much like Stig Larson, yeah. The the dialogue feels just absurd in it. I mean, I, I was like, I know these people are French, but nobody would talk like this. Like these are this is ridiculous. So anyway, in my yeah. dialogue. Um, I, of course, allow people to use slang because the dialogue comes sort of out of the character. Um, So it would be crazy to have all of my characters speak in the way that I do or express themselves in the way that I do. And I I do, you know, as an adult... um, As an adult, I will not speak slang. Is that that what it is? (laughs) No, as an adult, I think that I find myself using slang ironically and saying things that I wouldn't say as a teenager, like saying, that's cool or that's cute. I had banned the word cute from my lexicon for a long time. And I just an hour ago said, describe something as cute or I'll say awesome to my kids. Well, you're more orthodox than me. I have no problem with slang. I do have a problem with things like because so-and-so. That that just drives me nuts. But uh, And I can't get bring myself to say it. Except in irony, which is kind of missing the point, I suppose. Um, we've uh, we've strayed quite a bit, and I, I want to get back to the life you depict, or the Joanna persona you depict on on the page. You knew nothing of snow days. You knew nothing of jobs. You knew nothing of agents. You knew nothing of publishing, of how much sandwiches cost, of how much tax was taken from your paycheck. Uh, there is one astonishing revelation midway through the book about unexpected student loans. Uh, this leads me to ask, especially in light of you kind of talking about your parents a little bit, how did you manage to delay learning about the responsibilities of life for so long? 
Well, I mean, I was only 23 when this book takes place. So I don't think I I delayed them so long. I mean, I actually think, um, first first of all, I'll say I, I think, um, and I, I guess I'll say for people listening, this book takes place over the year that I was 23 and turned 24. 1996. And, yes, and chronicles um, my first job, which was at... Um, a, the agency. A, a very storied agency, one of the oldest agencies, the second oldest literary agency in New York. And, um, the fir- and if you say the first agency, they will strike you dead in the street. I think that's the New York Publishing Codex. But anyway, <laughs> there's there's contention about which is the oldest uh, because literary agencies, when they first came into existence in the twenties, feuds have been drawn over this question. They were they were less established um, things. They were just kind of like a guy selling someone's literary rights. So it's not quite clear which of two is the oldest. Regardless, um, I. Um, you know, I I was 23. I had gone to college. I had spent a year in grad school, and then I took this job. And so, how did um, I think that the sort of arc that I am describing in the book is actually relatively normal? A lot of my friends were going through the same thing. Um, they had grown up um, in many of them, you know, in kind of coddled, affluent suburbs, um, or um, had, or perhaps, you know. Um, the sort of coddled upper middle class, you know, echelons of uh, New York City or L.A. or places like that. And their parents, you know, had essentially provided for them. And when uh, in moving to New York, especially um, more so than other cities, like so at this time, you know, friends of mine were moving to Prague and Seattle and Portland and Chicago, where there was a lot of music, you know, and and also comedy happening. And they had a slightly easier time. But those of us who moved to New York, um, I think we're unprepared for um, the kind of economic realities of of the city. Um, And, you know, many of my friends really struggled. I think they, they... they sort of believed that they could move to the city and survive as, you know, actors, writers, dancers, or what have you. But it, it was this was not, you know, the New York City of like a James Baldwin novel, or you know, or the New York City of like, I don't know, my parents, where you could rent an apartment on Mulberry Street for thirty dollars a month. And this was, you know, nineteen ninety six. We were at the end of a big recession. It, it was sort of almost the worst time to be a young person in New York. I mean, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse. But there, so we were at the end of a, this terrible recession. So there, you know, were there was sort of a dearth of jobs, and yet at the same time, we were at the beginning of the dot com boom. So there was all this influx of cash and all of these, um, you know, people moving to sort to sort of like start dot coms and Silicon Alley and what have you. And so you have these kind of wealthier people moving in um, and um, real estate sort of going up and up as it always does. But this was a particular moment where things were quite, quite difficult. Um, where but you're saying this in the we as opposed to the I. What about you, Joanna? What, what did you do to adapt to this new reality? And especially the, and I don't want to give too much away, but it seems to me that your parents had a very controlling hand in uh, how you learned about life. And you really had to sort of resist actually leaving and figuring out what it was to be an adult. Um, sort of. Um, so I'll, I'll just explain a little bit about, about the book. So, um, I, um, before the book begins, um, I had been sort of, um, de facto engaged to my college boyfriend, um, who was, you know, wonderful in all ways. My parents loved him. Um, 
and my whole family loved him. He was about to start a doctoral program in Berkeley, and it was just assumed that I was going to move out there. And um, he had found an apartment for us, and I would find some sort of job. Um, you know, I had I just finished a master's but in English, but that's another way of saying that I had dropped out of a PhD program because I became disillusioned with academia. So I, um, I was essentially, in other words, I was on a kind of um, semi-path. Like I was going to marry this you know, person who was wonderful in all ways and also loved, you know, accepted by my family from the very similar background to me. Um, I would, you know, it was just everyone sort of assumed that I would, you know, finish my PhD maybe at Berkeley or somewhere nearby. Um, a lot of my family was in this area. Presumably I would settle down there. We would both get academic jobs and have children. And um, there was something in me that, um, you know, and because my parents supported this, they, um, you know, were somewhat generous with me financially um, because they were, this is what they wanted me to do. And I then, um, when the book begins, basically, I have veered from this path. I I essentially, I went out to Berkeley to sort of um, see the apartment, figure things out. And then I was supposed to go back home and just get my stuff and come and live there permanently. And I went back to New York and essentially lived like, a 23-year-old. I went out every night. I went to parties. I, you know, saw all my college and high school friends who were all, because I'm from New York, they were all there, you know, and um, I somehow fell into a job working as a PA on a Barbara Streisand film. Really? And so, yeah. Which one was it? The Mirror Has Two Faces. Oh, that one, which is... I've still never it, seen it, actually. I never saw it either. It was from and, Jeff Bridges, yeah. Yes, yeah. and it was filmed at Columbia, and so a lot of my friends were in film school at Columbia, and one of them said, hey, do you want to work as a PA on this film? I said, sure. So this seemed like such a weird and cool opportunity that um, I, you know, I was able to say to, to my college boyfriend, you know, I'm going to do this, and then I'll come out to you. And, um, and then when that ended, um, I somehow fell into, um, in short, I fell into this job at the agency and that seemed like such a great opportunity that, um, I said, you know, I got this job. I'm just going to stay for a little bit and try it out. I very nervously said this to him. And so in other words, I, I went through a kind of almost, the kind of a little bit the kind of rebellion that kids often go through when they're adolescents and i had never done anything like this i had been you know the rule following perfect student yeah. obedient like devoted to family sort of kid um and so somehow my you know my family i don't want to say my family was oppressive because that's absolutely inaccurate they were not but they sort of have just a very strong defined sense of how a person should live in the yeah. world. And perhaps because they were of this, my parents, because they were of this older generation, had just a more conservative approach to life. Like lots of my friends' parents were more children of the 60s and 70s and were like, do whatever you want, be a writer, do this. Whereas my parents were like, you need to go to law school. You need, you know, they were more sort of an immigrant Have a mentality. career, be, be, a get, be married, be solid, own property, that kind of yes, thing. Yes, yeah. exactly. And really this was very different than most of my friends' yeah. parents. So, um, so wait, so where did this rebellious spirit, where did this come from? I mean, did you feel that uh, you could sort of figure out what you wanted to do through publishing after you had sort of done the academic racket? <laughs> well, I, you know, as I said, I really fell into this job. I didn't have any desire to work in publishing. I didn't think, I want to work in publishing. I yeah. had my senior year of college as a sort of backup plan. I had interviewed just with the HR department yeah. at Random House 
And it was such an unpleasant experience that I thought, you know, I never, I don't want to do this actually. Like the career services people at Oberlin had set it up for me and I had to, you know, go into their corporate office in this ill-fitting suit and I just hated the whole thing. Um, but the agency was a whole different story because Random House is an enormous corporation who is now my, my publisher, actually, ironically. Um, and I, I was not really suited to working in a corporate environment. It's just not my my mentality. But the agency was this smaller, you know, a tiny um, institution. Um, it felt like working in someone's home. And um, it turned out that I was really suited to it. Um, it you know, it was it was fun. It was interesting. It was, it was actually very literary. It wasn't just about the bottom line. Um, I got to work with the estates of these sort of exciting authors. And so, um, anyway, I didn't, I wasn't trying to rebel through publishing, but I was, I mean, my parents did consider this a very strange and rebellious thing to do. They really did. And they felt like, oh my goodness, you know, you went to this at the time Oberlin was, I think like it was one of the top five liberal arts colleges in the country. And, you know, I had gotten like an almost perfect score on my SATs. I was like that, you know, I was you very much like that. You put this off as long as you could. And then finally, all right, then, it's time to strike yes, out. Yeah, yes, yeah. they just thought it was crazy. Like you could have gone to law school. You could have done anything, you know, and why are you doing this? And you're making so little money and – and, um, but the sense I got, at least as you portrayed yourself in the book, is that you almost kind of fell into this. I, the one thing I really actually enjoyed, especially in the early part, is how you sort of say, well, I I, I didn't really know money. I, 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 yes, there were books, plentiful books. I didn't realize I'd bought so much. Yeah, and that, that you weren't really keeping tabs of how much things cost, uh, how things broke down, how much of your paycheck was going to go into into, into rent and, and expenses and so forth. So, But at the same time, that kind of... Uh, amorphousness, that kind of ambiguity actually ended up it ended up working out for you simply by by even showing up to your job the first day when it's a snow day, you know? Well, it was, you know, in terms of the financial stuff, it, it was sort of a mixed bag. I mean, my parents, here again, so just to sort of give a little context, you know, my, my father was a first-generation American. His parents, you know, um, as children had escaped the pogroms and come to the U.S., my mother, um, her family had been in the, the States for a bit longer, but, um, you know, they they were from that kind of unstable immigrant background, and their priority as adults was sort of setting up a stable home life and protecting me and my siblings from the kind of instability with which they... My mother, you know, had been raised by a single mother. She had had to like live with various aunts and uncles, being shunted from home to home. She had had a very unstable upbringing and, you know, with never enough money. And they... I see... I definitely... I saw at the time, and I really, really see now that I have my own kids, that they wanted to protect me from that, perhaps. And they wanted to protect me also just... There had been a lot of tragedy in my family. They wanted to protect me from the world in a way... And but I think it was in your genotype because your father actually was an actor before he was a dentist, as you point out in the book, and he was a yeah. dentist who liked to tell jokes. And so uh, so definitely that strain was certainly in the Rakoff uh, uh, makeup, I think. Do you mean like the sort of artistic The strain? artistic, the kind of like wanting to sort of just be sort of exuberant in some sense. At least at least that's – I mean I'm basing this, of course, off of the book and off of the last time we met. But I think it's – I think it was there, you know? Yeah. No, no, it's true. And there was this kind of ambivalence. I mean in terms of like my career stuff, my father, when I was a child, actually really encouraged me to be an actor myself. I was constantly told, you know, that I was a good actor and that I had talent in that. And so I did – 
sort of veer in that direction. And then my mother would freak out and kind of pull me back in. And my dad was much more sort of tolerant of these things, but he would, it was a bit schizophrenic to use the term loosely. Like he would sort of encourage my sort of more artistic, creative things. And then he would pull back and say, why don't you go to law school? And he couldn't figure out what he wanted. And there was also very possibly like a little bit of annoyance and resentment with the kind of privilege that I'd been born into. Because as I said, he grew up, you know, during the Depression and like starting off in like a tenement apartment where like his bedroom was like a curtained off area behind his father's dental office. So I think that there was a little bit of that that he felt like, oh, you know, you think that you can just do, there's a scene in the book where he kind of says this to me, you think you can just do whatever you want, but you really need to sort of face the reality of life. And I didn't even understand what that was yeah. purely because he and my mother had been so protective and I had never seen a bill. I had never heard any concern about money, anything. We weren't incredibly wealthy, but, you know, my mother owned multiple fur coats. We traveled all over the world. It, it was very – my parents always said to me, you're, you're a kid who never asked for anything. You never asked for toys, whatever. But if I did, you know, there was never a problem with getting it. Um, but there's also this impulse to conceal how you were learning to live in New York with this guy named Don, this boyfriend in this apartment who you didn't really tell them about. Uh, simultaneously, they're being, as I alluded earlier, very uh, controlling in terms of signing you up for a student loan without actually informing you and uh, not kind of being clear about the costs. So, you know, how do you how do you divigate through that particular friction? I mean, you want to be who you are. You want to actually, I think... Uh, learn how to do things. You you do say I do, and you do do things. But at the same time, uh, you know you have to make mistakes. How, how do you how do you deal with this with this family dynamic? I mean, I guess I'm not sure what you're asking me. Can you? I mean, no, I mean, how do you how do you find yourself when you are dealing in one hand having to conceal things from your parents while simultaneously having to kind of stave off the well, we're taking care of everything. You should live with us and and. Uh, get up for work two hours early for the two-hour commute. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that's why I rebelled in the way that I did in a kind of stealth way. Like rather than, you know, I don't know, like doing lots of drugs in their living room or I don't even know what. Um, I, I sort of rebelled in the kind of a student who's secretly doing drugs in the bathroom way, though I didn't secretly do drugs in the bathroom. I, I I took this job that, you know, in New York parlance was a glamour job and that they, they could, if they really wanted to, they could talk to their friends about it. And it seemed like a respectable thing to do. And it was, had its own career path. You know, when I lived in Williamsburg where we are right now, um, and, um, which they thought was weird, but it wasn't, so within the, I wasn't living in a squat with a bunch yeah. of, you know, unwashed, dreadlocked drug addicts or whatever, I, you know, so they, um, they, it was definitely clear that they disapproved of things, but I, I sort of, I just kept a lot from them. And that was sort of my way of rebelling was withholding from them. Um, whereas before, you know, when I was a kid, I definitely considered my parents like my best friends. I was a really unpopular dorky kid and I loved my parents and sort of told them everything but when I got older I realized at that point and that was sort of when I realized in order for me to sort of live the life that I want 
I have to withhold from them. I have to keep things closer to the bone. And still my mother complains about this to me. I'll hear her talking to her yeah. friends and she Joanna keeps things very close to the bone. That's her term. You had the temperament uh, of someone who was a generation above. I, do you think this is why you were able to uh, implement yourself into this agency, which in fact was a little bit behind the times, had massive typewriters in which you had to type letters that way, uh, the computer issue came later, that, that having a kind of old school type of agency was actually prob- probably something with which you could actually find, uh, find, your, find your identity and also get, you know, basically hit the, hit the pavement with your feet. Yes. Yeah. And just to explain, um, this, so this was 1996 and the agency at, at which I worked, um, was ferociously opposed to, um, any sort of modern, um, Implement. technology. Yes. Exactly. They had only recently obtained a fax machine and a copy machine. So, and I mean, not that long before I worked there, they had used a telex machine to communicate with the West Coast. And they had, the assistants had to... Had to learn semaphore. Basically, yes, or like with tin cans and strings. But no, the assistants had had to um, use carbon paper to make copies. So every time an assistant typed any letter, even if it was just a letter saying, enclosed is an agreement for your signature, you know, they would have to take letterhead and then they would have to put a piece of carbon paper behind it. And then they would have to put a piece of this pulpy yellow cheap paper um, behind that. So it was like a little carbon sandwich and type the whole letter that way, which I had done, you know, when I was a kid in my dad's office. Um, But um, but this was 1996. People had not done this for a long, lo- like for decades. You were just on the tail point. end of this analog thing, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, this office was really, really out of step with the rest of the world. Like to, and that's actually an understatement. It's like this was, as I said, this was the beginning of the dot com era. I had friends who were working at dot coms. I had friends who were like designing video games. I had friends who were like on the ground floor launching online magazines. And I had lots of friends who just worked in publishing at like Random House or wherever. And they used computers and they communicated via email and they were phasing out fax machines. And my office, there was nothing. There was no technology at all. There wasn't even voicemail. They had a receptionist. And if you called when the receptionist was not there, you could not get through to anyone. You could not leave a message. That was the phone just rang. So, and you had to, the assistants all had to cover the receptionist lunch so that there would be someone at the reception desk. And it, it was also sort of lovely in its archaicness in that, um, like, the receptionist went to lunch for an hour. Yeah. And my boss would go to lunch for two hours. And that she was, it was sort of very, uh, this was kind of the old model of publishing in which it was kind of this chummy club if you were an agent, the people you were meeting for lunch were your friends and it was enjoyable. And you would, instead of having a big auction for a book, you would say, Perry, I've got this book. I think you're going to love it. This guy's an explorer. He, you know, traveled through Indonesia. He's writing this book about this, whatever, this town he lived in for a year. I'm completely making this up. And Harry would say, that sounds great. Yeah. You do, know, do you think, though, that working in an environment in which you had to, actually had to use your hands for technology, which there were no touch screens, that this afforded you certain advantages that your peers or your friends uh, didn't have because uh, you didn't have necessarily all these uh, distractions? You, didn't ha- you actually had to physically 
type and, and rip off the carbon sheets and actually go ahead and, and, and retype the letter often if it was wrong. Uh, you know, what do you think that um, that this uh, this kind of, I guess, in its own way, forged the way that you did business later on or, or the way you even lived? Um, I don't know if it afforded me an advantage. I, I really don't. But I will say that I did I did really like it. So as as you said, I in a way, I think the reason that I was hired um, by my boss, um, who had been looking for an assistant for quite some time when she hired me and couldn't find anyone suitable, because at this point, you know, young people were beginning to sort of not be able to type properly because they've been using computers and what have you. I think the reason that I appealed to her was because I was raised, she was my parents' generation. The office was sort of steeped in the culture of that generation. And I think that, you know, I used proper grammar and um, had read, I, I understood her cultural references. Like, for instance, the agency represented a lot of old New Yorker writers like S.J. Perlman and um, and then also writers who had really fallen out of vogue, like, let's say, Pearl Buck. Yeah. And these were the writers who, um, their books lined the bookshelves of my parents and my grandparents' houses. And I had read them growing up just because they were there. I read everything. So I understood, you know, what what was going on there. I could actually type because I had had a typewriter growing yeah. up. And I think that I got the agency and they got me because we were a little bit coming from the same place. And I, um, I did actually love typing. I liked the typewriter. I liked the sound of the typewriter. It would give me a headache. There was a, a sort of low level buzz. And after, you know, by sort of say like four o'clock, it would, it actually would give me a headache and I would have to shut it off and take a break from it. But I, I liked I the typing sound. too. So I know yes, what you mean. Yeah. And you say it haunted your dreams as well. It did. Well, I typed so much, especially in the first weeks that I was there because my, you know, my boss had been without an assistant for I can't something like two or three months. Yeah. So she had this enormous backlog of um, typing that had to be done. So for the first weeks I was there, I just typed all day. And at first, um, I made a lot of mistakes without realizing. I thought I was a great typist, but I wasn't. And I made all these mistakes um, and would have to just type things over and over and over again. And I, I just really typed all day. Yeah, yeah. And so I had dreams about it. We were talking about uh, old school writers that this agency represented. And, well, this leads me to ask, well, we should actually talk about Jerry Salinger. Um, you know, people well past young adulthood uh, tend to scoff at Salinger, believing that there isn't really any literary value in his work. Uh, it's a little more bellicose than the I read him in high school remark that these two New Yorker editors basically said at the rooftop party later on in the book. But you describe receiving letters from readers of all ages. Uh, and, you know, I, I have to wonder if it may actually be a generational shift because I, I personally have never felt any need to knock Salinger, and, and I'm just south of 40. So, you know, I know literary people in their late 20s and their early 30s tend to kind of knock him, but what, what do you think is uh, responsible for this hostility to that voice? Is it a kind of analog digital 20th, 21st century thing? Because I, I also see this also with John Updike. There's a lot of people who are hostile to him, too. So what do you think? You know, I, I at the risk of seeming contrarian, I, I don't actually see the phenomenon that you're... And I will, you know, I... I spend a lot of my time talking about Salinger with people of all ages these days. So at this point, um, you know, this book hasn't come out, but yeah. um, I, there have been pieces of it out in the world, um, and particularly a week or so ago, or the, in this last week, a chunk of the book appeared in Vogue. Yeah. 
and people have been reading it. And so everywhere I go, people ask me about it and ask me about Salinger. And and also, you know, there was this big Salinger documentary that was aired on PBS. Yes. Um, and that, for whatever reason, that sort of, I mean, that got a huge amount of attention. It and And it led to a lot of people saying, like, I watched, I mean, it seemed like everyone in the world was like, I watched the Salinger documentary. What did you think about it? Uh, this, that, you know. And there, There's also a lot of people who reviled that documentary and the accompanying book. Uh, and maybe that might actually have something to do with what I've detected. I also I detected this strain uh, when Salinger had passed away that just a lot of people were saying, ah, he wasn't all that, that big of a deal. And then, of course, there's that s- stupid Freddie Stanellis tweet as well. I- I'm just wondering, you know, uh, what 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 do you think it might be? But it seems to me that uh, you're not seeing this. I'm not. I mean, what I see is that there's just a huge spectrum of people's feelings about Salinger. You know, there are people who read him in high school yes. who like him. I actually think, uh, okay, when I worked at the agency, that was a very different moment in literary culture. Yes. Um, and so in the more sort of academic realm, you know, literary theory was king. And um, postmodernism was, wasn't quite dead. <laughs> no, not even close. Yeah. Like that was really sort of, um, you know, the moment of also like PC stuff, that which yeah. is a little bit part of the plot of the book. Of There's one of the writers um, the agency represents is kind of persecuted for doing something that now I don't know if he would get in so much trouble for. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, um, I mean – here again, to use this word again, there was a whole spectrum of writers that were popular, but the kind of aesthetic that was really um, kind of cherished at that moment was this kind of um, very cool, very sort of masculine, like Martin Amos yeah. was enormously popular. Oh, yeah. like London Fields had not come out that long ago. I remember ago. everybody reading paperbacks of him, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. psh, just yeah. it stopped overnight. And this is when Infinite Jest came out. Yes. Um, and there were there was really there were a uh, Mary Gates Gill was quite popular yes. then too, but there were just a lot of um, Jonathan Franzen was publishing his first books. Am you know. Holmes was big, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and so um, the Salinger's what was Salinger and my and I felt this way too. You know, I was this kind of academic person um, who wanted to be a writer myself and definitely didn't want to be perceived as being sort of ultra feminine or writing like on the domestic or anything that would be perceived as sort of like weak and lesser. I wanted to sort of um, sort of put myself out there with the kind of like big writers in, in my mind. That Those were the people that I aligned myself with before having barely written anything. And so um, my perception of Salinger, I had, I, I should clarify here and say that I had not read Salinger and this is part of the plot of the book. Everyone that I knew had read Salinger in high school or in college, and I had not. Um, and for some reason, I'm talking a lot about my parents in this interview, and it's not completely relevant. But my parents actually were of Salinger's generation. They were a bit younger, but you know, they read Salinger stories in the New Yorker when they came out. They loved Salinger, and I um, had, in fact, and I still have um, my mother's copy of Franny and Zoe. Um, which it's not a first edition, but it's an you know a second or third edition um, that my sisters and brother had given her. Oh my God! I guess on her birthday. Wow. Um, you know, in whatever it was, nineteen sixty-eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, and you know, it's signed like you know, it says actually, dear mom, I think it's happy birthday. Is it Mother's Day? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and then it says, love your Franny and Zoe. And um, even though there were two sisters and a brother, they just muffed that. So 
and that like these books were on the shelf, but I just didn't read them. So I guess I, I just felt like they were too silly. I perceived them as being cutesy. I perceived them as being sort of juvenile. And I just, I ignored them. And then once I started working at the agency, this I retained this perception of Salinger. Yeah. Um, and um, ultimately began reading him in part because the letters that he received from people, as you said, of all ages, all over the world, um, were so moving and so passionate and so Reader interesting. response got you reading him. Yeah. Well, they were just – these. the people that were writing to Salinger were really smart. They weren't like dumb, insane freaks cranks or they or weren't anything, yeah. like whoever like writes a fan letter to Britney Spears or whatever. They were there, – there were cranks, I should say. There were. There were cranks and crazy people. But the majority of the letters were these like intelligent, interesting letters. Yeah. And – I thought, you know, who are these people? And it's I started to get a glimmer of what his work was like through the letters, like through people quoting them. And I thought, this isn't exactly what I thought it was. Maybe I've been wrong. And then I got to know him. And he was not what I thought he would be either. And eventually I read them and I realized that they were not at all what I thought they were. So anyway, um, to go back to your original question about like people sort of, I don't know, not having interest in Salinger, I, I guess I just... I don't see that. What I see is an enormous spectrum of everything. I talk to people about Salinger every single day, multiple times a day. Like I go to school and drop off my kids and some random parent is like, your new book is about Salinger. Oh my God. Or like I go to Florida with my kids and meet like my son's best friend's grandmother. And she was like, you're the person. You have the thing in vogue about Salinger. I – um I read The Catcher in the Rye when I was in high school in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I loved it so much that I wrote my own version of it called The Watcher in the High about Teaneck High School. And, you know, and so it's like everything from people who loved him but now are not interested to people like me who never read him and now are, people who have never been interested. Like it, it seems to go – and I don't see any sort of trend in terms of age group at all. Like I talk to people who are – in their 20s who are like, oh my God, I love Salinger. Yeah. And to people who are in their 20s who've never read him and just don't even care and are like, who? Whatever. And I don't know. There's this incredible moment in this book involving Judy Bloom. Uh, one that is more alarming than the Marxist interpretation of the Judy Bloom canon by Dawn, this guy, uh, where she cuts the agency loose because your boss can't understand why Judy Bloom writing an adult novel would have audience appeal. So, you know, how were you able to keep your contemporary reading sensibilities alive as you faced some of this uh, doughty pushback? Um, wait, say that again? I don't understand. Well, well, you know, you have the situation where, um, you know, you read this novel and you understand that Judy Bloom has this built-in audience of readers who want to see what she's going to do as an adult. And what ends up happening is, is that uh, your boss doesn't quite understand this. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, um, you, you seem to have, at least as you depict in the book, uh, a good understanding of contemporary literary sensibilities at the time. Uh, well, uh, how did you keep these uh, alive when you had some of these more old-fashioned sensibilities in place uh, at the agency? Oh, well... You know, I don't know. It wasn't difficult at all. I mean, I, at the agency, um, so uh, let me, I'm just going to clarify here um, just so this makes, makes might, might make more sense. My boss um, was the president of this agency, and she was probably in her 60s at the time. Um, she was this kind of grand, publishing grand dame who wore like 
caftans and like oversized pantsuits and this enormous jewelry and um and she was really a force to be reckoned with huge glasses she would kind of sweep into the office in a mink coat you know without speaking to anyone um and um she had very french hair that was kind of dyed this ash color and um so she was an amazing um business person um, and really fantastic with contracts. Like she, she would have been a great lawyer if she had gone to law school. She would have been like taken over the world. She would have. And, um, but she. It, it wasn't just that she didn't grasp um, contemporary literature. It, it just was more that she wasn't. You know, she didn't totally have an agent's literary sensibility. She didn't trust her instincts that well. She didn't get what would sell and what wouldn't. And I think she just wasn't, she wasn't super literary. She wasn't a huge reader. Um, She liked to read mystery novels. Um, She started off um, working as an editorial assistant at Playboy, the fiction assistant. And she really loved short fiction and sort of got short fiction. And her job at the agency, her original job had been um, selling for serial rights. But this was decades prior when there was a lot of money to be made from selling short stories and articles to magazines and that job disappeared because there was no longer magazines were no longer publishing short fiction in the kind of numbers that they were decades before so um she you know would occasionally ask my opinion about things so in the case of Judy Bloom Judy Bloom had been a client of um an agent um again a sort of legendary agent whose name was Claire Price um, oh my God, that was my neighbor in New York. No, her name was Claire Smith. Um, her husband, who's a lovely man, um, is the children's book writer Robert Kimmel Smith, who's quite well known. Um, and um, together they were this sort of charming literary couple. And Claire became ill and um, retired. And she had many well known clients, um, m- many of them children's book writers. Um, and um, and she also she loved um, fantastic stories and science fiction. This was before that was so big and it was considered a little bit weird actually that she represented these writers of fantasy. And so when Clara retired, um, it was assumed that um, by my boss that all of her clients would be would go to my boss, that she would just take them over. And I didn't know that much about agencies. So when this was explained to me, I was like, oh, of course, they'll stay at the agency. I now know, and everyone who works in the literary world know that knows that, you know, a writer's allegiance is to their actual agent. So my agent left her agency, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. And I, I didn't even consider staying with the agency. I just automatically left with my agent, who's yeah. been my agent for ages and is a close friend and knows everything about my life. And I you know, I would never have just gone to some person I'd never met before. But the agency was so steeped in its own culture that they really believed that the clients were too. And that what was important to the clients was the agency's name and the agency's history. I don't think everyone believed that, but my boss and her sort of, you know, people of her generation did. And that was, of course, not what happened. And so with Judy Bloom, um, I think Judy did have some loyalty to the agency and Claire had been a wonderful agent for her and made her career. And so she, um, you know, called, she, she sent to the agency, um, a a draft of her, her newest novel, um, which was called Summer Sisters. And, um, you know, my boss read it and, um, you know, said to me, you know, do you think you can take a look at this? I, I just, am not sure what, 
what it is. And or, I mean, she didn't say it like that, but she asked me to take a look at it. She actually did it slightly more mysteriously even. And I read it and um, I saw that my boss's confusion was that I think my boss was expecting a children's book and it was instead a novel for adults. And Judy Bloom had published other novels yes. for it, Wifey, which was a huge yes, bestseller. Yes. But somehow it was more than that. The, the novel, some of you may have read Summer Sisters, it was a big bestseller, um, you know, takes place in part when the main characters are children and in part when they're adolescents. And I think my boss felt like that it fell between two stools that, you know, were adults going to read a book that's partly about childhood and adolescence, but would an adolescent read a book that's partly about grown-ups living in New York City and having babies? And, um, and you know, she was a, a rather literal-minded person um, from my experience. So, um, so anyway, so I was asked to sort of weigh in on this. And what ultimately happened, you know, was that Judy Bloom came in and, and – you know, fired the agency and fired my boss. Yeah. Um, did she do this purely? Like, did my boss go to lunch with her and say, "I don't get this book"? I don't know if she did or not. I wasn't. I wasn't there. She could have said to her, "I loved it. Please stay with us," because the agency was in some trouble at this point, and they really needed to keep client. They weren't in trouble. I shouldn't say that, but they were losing clients. They needed to. They would have liked to keep her. But um, I think my boss was a person who. She, she, it was not possible for her to say, I loved this book yeah. if she didn't. Yeah. And so that was really sort of what was going on, you know, in, in that. So I didn't, I never had trouble. Um, it, I didn't have any trouble sort of with losing sight of my own instincts as a reader or my own proclivities or, yeah. or anything because like that. Because the office culture here allowed you to kind of keep an independent opinion that was sometimes consulted with by the boss and with other folks and all that. I mean, basically manuscripts yeah. were read and passed around and, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? That kind of thing. Actually, not so much. They huh. weren't read and passed around. They weren't. A lot of agencies do that, but this agency yeah. did not. Um I did work as a reader for um, another agent who was the agency's sort of prominent um, designated reader, basically. Well, I I worked as a reader for an agent who um, was the the one person at the agency who was representing you know really um, interesting and successful contemporary writers. Yeah. Um, and I, I asked to read for him because I, I loved some of his writers and I was a little bit starstruck by him. Um, and he let me do so. And, and in fact, in a way, what happened was the opposite of what, what you've, um, suggested, which is that, um, in reading for him, um, and in reading for my boss as well, and I read for another agent, I don't talk about it in the book, um, who, um, I actually read for this other agent who mainly did film rights, but she represented some writers as well. And a funny story is that she handed me, this is just an aside, she handed me a manuscript and said, this came in through a film scout. I'm sure it's terrible. Just take a look at it. And I opened it up and it was written by a friend of mine from oh, Oberlin yeah. and who I knew was working for a film scout. And I and I was like, what? And I actually didn't, she had written in college, but I didn't know that she was working on a novel. I'd seen her and she hadn't mentioned it. And um, I read it and it was great. It was so good. And I was, of course, really relieved that this person, you know, and so I really, I read it all in one night and I really excitedly went back to the agent and was like, this is so good. And I knew also that this particular agent was going to love this book. It was about a circus in Prague and it like had great characters and it was, 
you know, kind of quirky, but really compelling as well. And I, I just knew that she would love it. And um, so you have to read this. And um, I didn't tell her that it was written by someone I knew. And I thought, should I have? And then she read it and she loved it. And then I said, I have to tell you something. You know, I went to college with this person and, you know, I know her. She's a friend. Um, I love, she's a lovely person. I love her. Um, and, you know, so it was all okay. Um, so she took this person on and she actually couldn't sell this book, but she sold her next book, which was called Bee Season. Um, yes. And the writer was Myla Goldberg yes. and it became this enormous, and, you know, an enormous bestseller. And so it was fun to have played a little role in that. But anyway, point is that, when you read for agents or for editors, um, what happens, and I've talked about this with so many people who've you know, been assistants, is actually that your aesthetic and your ideas about contemporary literature or whatever, whatever, your ideas about writing become more refined rather than sort of being subsumed. There's no, you know, I don't think that you find in, in a publishing house or an agency that there's a kind of like institutional approach to things. You know, it, agents are very autonomous and they respond to th- – and so do editors. They respond to things kind of just based on a gut feeling or an instinct and you kind of learn to do the same. Um, and that is really what happened. It really – working for agents – I went on after this agency to work for another agent for two years and um, working at agencies really taught me – to be a writer myself. It also taught me to be a book critic. I already had those inclinations um, and had been told so by lots of people. And it also taught me to be an editor. You know, I worked at magazines as an editor and you really do in agenting, do a lot of editing and just, so it, it, you learn to trust yourself if you have those inclinations already, if you don't, well, let me, let, me, let me play devil's advocate here. If you had actually been with a sort of slick, Wiley style agency for your first time around. Do you think that you would have actually become a writer? Um, I do actually. I do because um, this is a question that I've actually been asked a few times in the past few days. Strangely, um, well, we, I, we all want you to be this venomous cutthroat type, you know. Yes, of course. Uh, which is so me. So I, I mean, firstly, this the agent that I read for. Um, who's called Max in the book, he wasn't a cutthroat, wily sort of person. He's like an incredibly kind, generous, warm human being who's like beloved by all. But he is a big deal agent. Like he's the top agent who represents like really, really sort of top tier writers. I mean, he was doing, this is in 1996, he was doing $2 million deals for writers. So it was not that different than working for Wiley. Like it didn't have the kind of, I don't know. I don't. I don't know Andrew Wiley, so I can't speak of. I do have friends who are represented by people at his agency, but it, it wasn't like working for some. I don't know for like the main. You know, the sort of boss and the devil wears Prada. It wasn't like that. He wasn't nasty to me, or no one was nasty to me in that way. But it was working for a high-powered, busy, taste-making person. You know, and. Um, and I loved working for him. I loved reading for him. Um, he's someone who's still in my life. I I still love him and I love everyone he represents. I think he has amazing taste. And it's interesting to see, I will say as a side note, so I've now known him and other agents. Um, during the period that I worked at this agency, he had a, a huge assistant problem. It's chronicled in the book. And I eventually um, suggested a friend of a friend for him who he hired and that person 
um, became an agent in her own right, and they now have their own agency. And so watching them over these years and seeing the books that their agency produces, you know, you see the way agents are making culture and influencing culture. Like their taste is sort of where things originate, you know. Um, anyway, um, so I – I think it's sort of clear in the book. I loved my job. And toward the end of the book, my boss um, starts giving me more responsibility and I, you know, sell a story to a magazine. It's a great feeling. Um, And even though she was a sort of scary person, I actually loved her and I loved working for her. And there was a lot of satisfaction in what I did. And so when I left, I, I did go to work for another agent, but I knew in going to work for that agent that I was not going to be an agent myself. There was no... No ladder in your mind. No, not at all. I knew that in working for the other agent, I might, you know, take on clients, but I knew that I was not in this for the long haul. I knew that I wanted... And what I wanted was to sit by myself and write. And working at the agency and doing all this reading and sort of editorial type stuff is what led me to realize that I, reading all these manuscripts, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. And I can do this. I, it, it, In a way, it demystified things for me. It sort of made me a writer in multiple ways. I mean, the other reason it made me a writer is because I was writing these responses to Salinger's fans. So Salinger's fans would write to me and I was supposed to send back this boilerplate letter, but I started writing personal responses to them. And even though I was writing as myself, there was a kind of anonymity to it. Like the stakes felt very low. I was sending these letters to strangers. And so I found myself able to kind of relax into writing these letters to them in a way that I never had. And the intense pleasure of that, of of sort of writing in an, an uninhibited way, very, but for an audience, so very different than writing in a journal, which I've never been a huge journal person. Um, did you keep a journal during this time to consult from for this memoir? I did keep a journal during this time. Um, and I, and I, I, though I've just said I wasn't a huge journal person, I, I did in the years before this, especially yeah. the year that I lived in London and in college, did keep journals. I think everybody does in their 20s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. I'm not even going to tell you about my five-subject notebook collection that sits in my file cabinets that no one will ever see that will be burned upon my death. Anyway. Yes, I know. That's <laughs> Yes, it's um, true. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I want to actually get into Don, the socialist boyfriend, um, who I found uh, quite uh, interesting and also quite a cautionary tale because he also fancied himself a novelist. Um, yeah. You know, you, you were describing a little bit about how you had to do a lot of reading and how you also had to do a lot of uh, – uh, you didn't tell this, but you were doing a lot of party hopping. A lot of your life was devoted to the agency. And then you've got this kind of – needy guy who is who needs his support and all that and you're sort of secretly working on your stories and your poems how did you find time to write under these circumstances how did you actually uh uh go about this without the kind of uh intrusion of don looking over your shoulder although there is one moment where he does kind of pop up and say ha ha but what, what what did you do here well um in some ways it, it was hard um he was this huge Presence. Oh, and which social, socialist bookstore did he work at? I was curious. Um, was it called Pathfinder? Pathfinder, okay. Yeah, yeah on yeah. Avenue A. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a scene in the book where we have dinner at an Italian restaurant that has all these clocks in it, and that was right by Pathfinder. Yeah, it was called yeah. Orologio. Um, and um, so I, um, I've always been a morning person. 
Um, and I would wake up um, before I had to go to work. I've always needed a big cushion in the morning. I'm that sort of person. Even now, no matter how early my kids wake up, I would rather wake up before them and have an hour to have yeah. a cup of coffee and write or read or just stare at the wall and gather my thoughts before they get up. There's, that, there's that Virginia Woolf diary entry where she says, yes, well, I, what, if we can go ahead and get the three hours in when the kids are away, uh, we'll get a lot done. It's like between 8 and 11 or something yeah. like that. And somehow for me, it, there's this that time before anyone else intrudes on my thoughts um and you know with technology it's actually very hard like i have to set um rules for myself like a lot of people do like no you cannot look at your phone when you wake up you know you can look at your phone after you drop the children off from school um you know or you can look at your phone after lunch or that kind of thing no email until after you've done your actual work unless there's pressing need for it. So, so you developed these so habits with, very early on, it sounds like. I did. I really did. And um, they were annoying to lots of people. Um, and Were they annoying to Don? Um, I don't know. Or was he just basically just asleep? Yeah. You know, he, um, he partied a good deal more uh-huh. than I did. Um, and so he would often oh, perfect. be asleep <laughs> yeah. in the morning and I would wake up. And I had... You know, he was very against the man and having an office job, and he would sort of make fun of my job a lot, you know, my fancy job, though he was also very, you know, proud of it. And he loved to go to parties um, with me and tell everyone at the party, Joanna works for the, you know, this fancy literary agency, and guess who their biggest client is? J.D. Salinger. Joanna, tell them all about Salinger. Yeah. And, like, he would but, have me recreate Salinger fan letters for people. But, but he also he called you bourgeois. He uh, he. There was a couple of terrible moments in the book where he's like commenting upon an attractive woman in a very flagrant way, and and he's also going ahead and writing these stereotypical women in his in his fiction. Uh, you know, how did you deal with this kind of male nonsense? Well, I you know I had. I had gone to Oberlin, and so I had not really experienced that much of it before. And before I went to Oberlin, you know, I had gone to social... I'm from that, like, Woody Allen background. I'd gone to socialist summer camp. So this was all brand new to you. Yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, partly why I ended up kind of being conked on the head by him and dating him. because He was... Here again, it's this sort of rebellious thing that most people go through in high school or in college, I did it slightly later. Oh, like I was so you like, had to deal with a disparaging bullshit man this late in life. Yeah. yeah, like who, I mean, he was sort of the equivalent of like, you know, the, this is the sort of thing that I saw happening with my friends when I was in high school and that it's been, it's recreated in tons of, you know, television dramas yeah. um, where you have like the kind of nice, safe boyfriend who loves you, and then you're sort of attracted to the guy and like with the motorcycle. Yeah, he yeah. was kind of like that. He was, was kind of like he was that the rebel, guy. The, yeah, the leather jacket and all that. Yeah, who I mean, who part of what it was was he sort of said to me, you know, burn your house down. Like he didn't say that, but he was like, you needed someone to say that to you. Yes, he was the person who said to me everything that everyone has told you is not important. Like. You don't need to fold all your clothing neatly. You don't need to dry clean all your sweaters. You don't need to wear a slip under every dress. You know, you don't need to follow the. You don't need to do all of these things that your parents or the world is telling you to do. And how much did you listen to him? And I listened. I mean, it's. It was less a question of listening or to him. His ideas. It was more a question. It was more that 
his um, sort of and he said those are sort of like the that's sort of like the base level of things that he would say to me. He he just was a person who really got off on being very provocative and saying very provocative things in any situation, and um, and so. I guess I just sort of needed that in a way. Um, I didn't, I mean, he was really, he had good qualities. Um, he definitely did. And he also shook up my literary sensibilities yeah. a lot. Um, and um, did, there were other good things that I won't talk about now. But he, uh, um, he, it, well, I mean, the big one was that he did actually, despite my sort of hiding my writing from him, he did kind of introduce me to a literary universe in a way and allowed me to see that being a writer was something that was actually possible. And even though he was not a successful writer, the fact that he was pursuing this so single-mindedly without any doubts about it being the path um, on which he was destined to go was really helpful for me. But did this guy ever become a writer? Um, he did. Um, he is certainly not, to use a cliched phrase, a household name. He's not, um, you know, his books have not found a wide audience. He, um, did not, in the book, um, part of the plot has to do with a novel he's writing. Um, and I end up sort of helping him get an agent for it. That novel did not sell. Um, however, he did go on to write, um, a non he he found success as a nonfiction writer, so he did some magazine work and still continues to do some magazine work and um, ended up publishing a nonfiction book about boxing, um, which he in in the book if you read it you'll see he's a boxer as well. Very big on the gym thing and says he can outdo yes. Mailer at one point. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and um, and then some years later he published another book um, actually about Williamsburg um, where, where he and I lived. Apparently I'm a character in both of these books. Um, How do you feel about that? I don't, I feel fine. I don't care. Um, but I, um, I, I haven't read either of them. Um, I, I've been told um, by friends um, that, you know, the portrayal of me in, in the Williamsburg book is, you know, both sort of like strangely loving. And a friend said to me, you know, I read the book and I, I, um, I had always thought, you know, he was just such a jerk and I couldn't understand why you were with him and why you had left your college boyfriend for him. I didn't exactly leave my college boyfriend for him, but regardless, there was a contrast there. Um, but, um, but this friend said to me, you know, reading that book, I realized that he had really loved you in his own way. Like it, the the way he portrays you, you can just see that he he loved you and you kind of broke his heart. And I was like, oh, God, great. Okay, now I have something else to feel bad. <laughs> but it's still, he was, as you can see, I left out a lot of the really horrible things that happened from oh. the book, actually, because I felt they strained credibility. Or, or perhaps it was a libel issue. Was this also why? Because I noticed in the Slate version of this book, you named your boss, and that name was just the boss in this book. You know, I wasn't actually thinking about libel, honestly. Um, I was more thinking about tone and style when I chose to just call my boss my boss and call my college boyfriend my college boyfriend um, and call the agency the agency. I I mean, the book is pretty stylized, um, not in like, I hope not in like a pretentious way, but there is like a sort of uniform style and tone that I, you know, developed and yeah. chose and that was part of it. And 
I wanted this to be to feel very much like a universal story, despite the specifics. You know, I, um, I wanted it to feel like this could be happening to any 23-year-old girl who moves to New York. Yes. Kind of, and that it didn't have to be at this agency with its weird typewriters or whatever. It could be, you know, there's well, my friend across town who's at McGraw-Hill. You know, um, it could be yeah. the person who goes, you know, to work for the Paris Review. It could be anything. And plenty of people who've read the book, now it's it's not out in stores, but it is a bit out in the world. And I... I keep meeting people who say, I read it and it reminded me of my first job working in a factory in Alaska, canning fish or these, or one person, this really sweet woman who's um, a, a sales rep actually for Knopf, um, who was so interesting to talk to, said to me, you know, I started working for Knopf in their warehouse, yeah, like just moving boxes of books. And your book reminded me so much of that. And I thought, wow, <laughs> really? Yeah. That was what I was hoping. Like I just, it, I'm as I said, I'm not really a memoir person, and the idea of just like writing a book that was just about me and my small life seemed was very hard for me to wrap my brain around. Um, and so I had to kind of play these tricks on myself to actually write it. Yes. You know? So I want I want to go back to this question of you saying that Dawn helped you in terms of providing another literary universe. Um, it's kind of funny because now we're being assaulted by Mr. Softy Truck. Apologies, listeners. <laughs> but um, you had your own universe by going to the agency, by going to these parties, by talking to editors, by reading manuscripts. Did you need to have two universes to kind of figure out your uh, literary identity? Um, maybe I did. Yeah, I mean, he was more... Um, in a sort of like scrappy, small press, you know, startup magazine, zine, very San Francisco. He had moved there from San, to New York from San Francisco, sort of San Francisco-y sort of world that had actually a lot of overlap with the agency. Like a, he had a friend um, who became a very close friend of mine um, who was much more from like the agency world. She, um, you know, her her parents were... Um, a combination of a, a very well-known um, writer and a, a well-known editor. And she had grown up, you know, on the Upper East Side and gone to fancy private schools and what have you. Um, but she had kind of rebelled against her parents as well, didn't do anything with writing or literature in, in her professional life, and um, but had read everything and was a voracious reader and every day would talk to her parents about, like, the new Rick Moody book or the new Don DeLillo book or whatever, which they were all, you know, sort of involved in. And so his world was this kind of odd, because he had gone to, you know, like me, he had gone to a kind of fancy liberal arts college, um, despite describing himself as being very working class. Um, and um, he had these friends from there, from San Francisco, who were sort of, sort of, um, they were all older than I was. And so they had a, a slightly sort of like DIY aesthetic, yes. uh, you know, that was more prevalent, like more in, I don't know, the earlier 90s. Um, you had sort of a West Coast alternative uh, idea to draw from. Yeah, yeah. And they um, like took poetry. Some of yeah. them took poetry very seriously. Yeah. And this was when like the whole spoken word thing was just coming about. And I had no interest Slams in that. Slams and all that, yeah. Yes. But they're just – it just – they were – he was sort of in a world where people were paying a lot of attention to stuff like that. And it was – 
I mean, it was kind of weird actually to, for instance, I did like one night with him and some other people. He hated all that stuff too. He was very sort of high culture and like read philosophy all the time. But um, one night I remember we went actually to um, a poetry slam um, at the New Yorkian. And um, and then I'm just trying to think like there was some – the next day I essentially like had to go to work in my fancy office and deal, you know, with like the Fitzgerald estate, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a kind of – and I was going to readings and things with um, not my boss but the, the other agent that I read for, Max. Yeah. I have a question for you. Do you think – Given that New York has drastically changed over the last two decades and uh, rents have increased, that you could have survived here in 2014 as opposed to 1996? I think about that. You know, um, my nephew is uh, about the same age that I was when this book takes place. Um, I have a sister who's 18 years older than I am, so her kids are grownups. Um and he lives around the corner from here in Williamsburg on Driggs Avenue at Driggs and Grand. And um, he um, wants to be a filmmaker. And he works actually um, in reality TV, yeah. Pawn Stars, that production company. And so you would think actually that he would make a lot more money than I did as a literary assistant. But um, And I hope I'm not revealing too much about his life. But he has a lot of trouble making ends meet. And yeah. his longtime girlfriend is a photographer. They, It's really hard. And there are stories of people living like 10 to like a two bedroom apartment. Yeah. I mean, really, 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 really hard. So could I have made it? I really don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't say. I just, I'm, I think it, it was hard for me then, but it wasn't that hard. You know, I did have a very cheap apartment. Yeah. And even with my extraordinarily low salary, I, I could actually afford my apartment. I could afford groceries. I could afford to go out sometimes. I didn't go into debt. Yeah. Actually, I didn't, you know, I didn't use credit cards. Um, the world was different in that way then. Like now it seems perfectly acceptable to yeah. just put your well, whole There's also a lot of cash only stuff too. Um, but, but this, but also culturally speaking, not just economically, I mean, uh, do you feel that maybe New York was more vibrant, that there was more clashing of cultures, intersections, convergences that, uh, as we were saying earlier, with the two-universe idea allowed you to kind of yeah. um, oscillate between so many different realms? Or or do we have enough of that uh, today in 2014? I think that there is still a lot of that. I really do. You know, I'm a bit detached from the whole world of like open mics and all of that. There was so much of that that was so huge in the mid-90s. Like every place had an open... Um, but I think that there... There do seem to be a lot of sort of the equivalent of that. Um, I guess a lot of it has been transferred online Yeah, is the thing. That's where people are kind of doing stuff like that. Um, that said, I will say that I, you know, I travel a lot. And I think that um, especially like in music, um, which is a big part of my life, like there's a lot of um, – it, it's so much easier to survive in a less expensive city, yes. even like a place that's been fully discovered, like Portland, yeah. it is so much cheaper there. Everything is cheaper. Or I now live in, or even Detroit. Detroit, yeah. yes, is like going to be the next place where every you know new band is coming from. But even I mean, I live in Cambridge now, and that's not a cheap place to live. But it is so much cheaper than New York. Like there are, I know because Cambridge is such a young town. But I not know, as expensive as San Francisco now. 
which That's is just true. astronomical. It's crazy. I mean, and it's, uh, don't get me started, yes. but it breaks my heart. I'm from San Francisco, so, you know, oh, yeah. So, it, yeah. yeah, it's, my family is all there. I know, it's ridiculous. It, but I, I do see um, how much, like, I, I know people, you know, in the Cambridge area who really are like kind of subsisting on almost nothing because you can still find a really inexpensive place to live with a roommate. And, um, you know, and same thing in so many other places and cities. And I think that, I mean, I do feel like that's possibly where the sort of more vibrant art scenes, if they haven't already transferred to other cities or even like not huge cities, like if you go to the Hudson river Valley, um, Beacon, Hudson, yep. not Rhinebeck exactly, but the surround, like Tivoli and Annandale. Yeah. yeah, across the river in Kingston, a, a little bit less, but like the other side of the yeah. river where Bard is and Vassar is, like there's, um, there's so much happening. There's so many writers and artists live up there now yeah. because- On Beacon especially. Yeah, but above there too, you know, actually the area by Bard, Tivoli, is just filled and Red Hook. They're just filled with art. so many people I know have moved up there because yeah. you can sort of have a more vibrant life. And you can um, actually own a home and not go into debt. Yeah. <laughs> Too much. Yeah. And the thing that I, I should, I feel like I need to clarify is that these are not all people who are starting families yeah. or in their 30s and 40s. Like, I, I mean, people who I relatively recently met a young woman who I think she must be 24 now. She was 23 then. She had just recently graduated from college, she was a studio art major. She decided that she wanted to open a shop. She sort of started making dresses, these very beautiful, like, bespoke dresses. And she's from New York. She grew up in the Upper East Side. And she realized that she just, her life here would be all about money. Whereas if she moved to Red Hook, she could live on almost nothing and open yeah. this shop. And so she did. She she very smartly opened the shop in Rhinebeck, where there's a more affluent population. So I feel like that is sort of the future Um I don't know. I don't know that New York is going to continue to be the sort of – I don't know that it even is anymore, the kind of artistic hub. You don't think that, that any was. young person could have their own Salinger year in 2014? I do. I think that a young person could have their own Salinger year. But it would be a lot more difficult. It would be more difficult. They'd probably have to live further out than I did. Um, they might have to have more parental supplementation. Um, they might have to – you know, live with roommates. Um, I, I think that, the, I mean, right now, there are... supplementation, is that like a vitamin you have? Or, yeah. yeah, I didn't there, get that. There are, I mean, as we speak, there are thousands and thousands of people having their Salinger years yeah. at, you know, in the Random House building, in the Harper Collins building, at every agency in the city, they're doing what I did. Yeah. And they're somehow making it work and they're probably having a great time doing it. Or they're doing it in some other field. That's a good place to close. Joanna, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Uh-huh.